I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor, and I'm here with another one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. It's me, Sarah Century, your beloved other host. I (laughs) am here also (laughs) with our guest, (laughs) who I have listened to all of the episodes of the podcast of. This is Jay Edidin. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Tell our listeners a few things about yourself. Hey, let's see. Um, I am a writer and editor, primarily but not exclusively of comics. I've edited a wildly wide range of stuff and written a bunch kind of all over the place. Most recently, Captain America Infinity Comic, um, which came out this past fall. I'm also a full-time graduate student in human rights, so I'm um, perennially sleep-deprived and a little bit incoherent. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and I podcast. I keep on forgetting to add that. That's sort of ridiculous. Um, I am half of the podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which is exactly what it says on the tin. It's been going for about seven years and is a deep dive hike through the continuity and cultural context of Marvel's Merry Mutants. Just even realizing that it has been seven years, I'm sure for you is like, oh, wow, seven years. But for me being like, oh, wow, seven years since I 
first listened to that opening episode. (laughs) It's weird that it's been going on that long. The way I sort of measure it in my head is that there are listeners who we were first in touch with when they were in middle school who are in college now. (laughs) Oh my. Which is is bizarre and kind of amazing. I never want to give any one person or group all the credit for, you know, starting anything. But I would say that your podcast was the thing that made me, first of all, get really into podcasts other than I think Stuff You Missed in History. But for comic book podcasts, it was that podcast where everybody was kind of like, hey, other X-Men fan who's queer and into all of the kind of uh, social justice aspects of this book. Maybe you'd like to listen to this podcast. And since then, there's so many great podcasts. There's, you know, Cerebro, Is It an X-Men, X of Words, all of these really great X-Men podcasts. So I think that what's interesting about the X-Men, too, is that you're all totally different podcasts. (laughs) Nobody is doing what you're doing. There's all of these others that have kind of sprung up, but it seems like there's just space for all of them and a lot of support between the people who are doing them. So would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happens now and again online is that people will do the equivalent of of like trying to put two ants in a jar and shaking it to make them fight, but with people. And so people will send us like, oh my God, so-and-so's encroaching on your territory. And it's always so silly because honestly, like there's more than enough for everyone. (laughs) There's such a wide landscape, even just looking at the X-Men of perspectives, of material, of ways to approach that material that I don't think that there's ever going to be sort of a full point. There's no real someone else's property when it comes to that stuff. And honestly, the more the merrier in that space. One of the really nice things about doing the podcast has been getting to know other people who are working in similar spaces um, and doing similar stuff and care about similar stuff. You're like, oh, well, as the creator of the X-Men, yeah, I do feel (laughs) like people are (laughs) encroaching on my property. Well, I guess that makes me understand why Chris Claremont is sometimes a little bit mad (laughs) because it's like, oh, yeah, all of the different takes on it. But for me, it's that's the most exciting thing about the book. There's whole eras of comics where I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to dip out. This isn't for me. I'm not a big fan of this. And you were covering Onslaught and you've both been like, well, this is fun in a lot of places. But, you know, I understand why people would dip out of it. Uh, There's always going to be eras that just aren't for you, and then you can just come back to them. The X-Men are going to be here, you know, for another 150 years, probably. (laughs) So One of the challenges of the podcast is that we can't. Yeah. Oh, right. You can't. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been been interesting really not having that option, kind of for the first time ever on a book that I wasn't actively, like, working on, um, of of just really needing to be that level of completist. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, I I was a teenager whenever Onslaught came out. And I feel like even at that time for me, I was kind of questionable about it being like, hmm, all right. But then I still stuck it out. I was still reading well past Zero Tolerance and all of the other stuff. So I was uh, definitely a diehard for a long time. And then ultimately, I think around like the early 2000s, I was like, all right, I'm gone. So I think that one of the best things for me about your podcast is is that it's kind of taken me through some of the parts where I was like, Mm-mm, I'm gone. <laughs> like, I can't do this. So what was the stuff that you noped out of the first time through? 
The first, I think it might have been whenever it shifted to Steven Siegel. I think there was a lot of focus on Gene and Scott for a minute there where they go to Alaska and they're having couple conversations. And I just kind of couldn't handle it because I felt like we had just done a bunch of that right before Onslaught and stuff. So I was just like, you know what? I can't deal with 05 stuff too much. I was pretty young at the time. I, I feel a lot more tolerant towards the 05 now because I'm, oh, you poor bastards. <laughs> like You have really been through the ringer. But at that time, I was like, I want to read about, you know, Marrow and, you know, all of the cool, edgy X-Men. So I, that was basically, I think, the first time where I was like moving, going through stuff, couldn't handle it anymore. And then I came back with Grant Morrison because they were doing such interesting work on the title that half the time I don't even agree with. Like I read back that era and I go, you know what? Some of this doesn't work for me even now. And I understand why at the time I was like, what is this? You know, but I appreciate that they tried to push it forward in this way that made it be interesting again. Right. Yeah. I don't love their entire run, but there's no part of it that I don't find worth revisiting whenever I do. Exactly. Yeah. And I think new things about it every time, too. That's another thing where I think the first time I was reading it, I was just so happy that somebody was giving Jean Grey space <laughs> and making her a person, you know, mm -hmm. outside of her relationship with Cyclops. I thought that it was, even though we saw a pretty flawed version of Jean, I think that that was something that was interesting to me. I had been waiting for that. So I appreciate it. And then I'll look through and be like, oh, yeah, actually, I didn't even really focus on the stuff that was going on with Cyclops, for instance, during this era. Because I think a lot of times with Cyclops, and we can <laughs> talk about that, is that I grew up obviously in the 90s. Cyclops is pretty hit and miss during that time period, whenever oh, yeah. I was reading comics. You look back and, you know, he's a very interesting character. And he's one of those characters that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I understand it now more. At the time, I loved Cyclops still. I think that he's always been a very interesting character, even whenever I don't agree with him. But I always am like, oh, wow, what a, what a strange person. <laughs> you know, like he has this, he's the person who was raised by Xavier. That's his whole personality sometimes where you're just like, yeah, he's reacting to being put in these terrible positions just time after time after time. But I think with Cyclops, I love that you have been able to build on that because you did a zine that was about Cyclops that I don't know how many people have seen. And I forget what the name of it was. What it's was a Ruby Quartz Panic Room. That's right. I haven't read it in a minute, but I picked it up at FlameCon and I thought that that was one of the best the analysis around Cyclops was so, so interesting. So Ruby Quartz Panic Room is basically about Cyclops and neurodivergence and my relationship to the character, and specifically my relationship to the character through a filter of being autistic. And it came out of the fact that when I first read a lot of X-Men, there are obviously a lot of characters who didn't like Cyclops. And it took me a while to realize that the stuff that they got on his case about was stuff that the reader was also supposed to find off-putting or, or laughable. Mm -hmm. Because it was a, a lot of it was stuff that I found, you know, either really normal or really relatable. So that, that, was, that, was, that was kind of an interesting and unsettling revelation. But it also led to Cyclops as a character becoming a really 
powerful lens and paper mirror for me in terms of expressing and exploring you know, my own neurodivergence as I went. And so that's that's kind of what the zine is about. It's 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 bits of writing and bits of things clipped out of comics and a lot of mess and yeah. Easily one of my favorite comic-related zines that's not just a comic because I think that, yeah, it's so personal and yet you are talking about this character who many times has been interpreted as being kind of, you know, a stick in the mud or like at, at best, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I think I think at worst he tends to be written as the character who exists for the cool characters to push against. Yeah. Like that's 100%. that's definitely the extent of his personality in most of the animated series. <laughs> but now you look at it, right? And you see it's whatever Wolverine is pushing against Cyclops. I read those comics and I'm like, yeah, when we're 12, we think that Cyclops is a jerk or whatever, you know, and then you you look at it now and I'm just, ah, I would hate being in a meeting with Wolverine. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. He's the worst, you know? <laughs> Can you imagine, like, trying to be in a Zoom meeting with Wolverine even? <laughs> like, that, that would just be its, its own circle of hell. You'd only see his, like, forehead and the top of his uh, <laughs> costume and he would just be like, God damn it, how does this work? <laughs> He would be doing something incredibly loud the entire time with his mic on. <laughs> He's just scraping his claws together. <laughs> like running a power sander. <laughs> we have to come up with a plan for what we're going to do next. And he's like, I go my own way, bub, or whatever. And you're just, look, you're in a team, right? You agree that we're all together in a team. <laughs> like we have to make plans together. Yeah. But also, this is the Fantastic Four. Why are you even in this call? <laughs> I'm in the FF now, bub. <laughs> oh, I think you might actually be. Yeah, sometimes, right? <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess my next question was, how does that zine play into Marvel Snapshots? Because I feel like from the podcast to the zine to Marvel Snapshots, this has been a long dialogue that you've had with Cyclops. And... Every new thing, I'm I'm learning more about both the character and then your writing style. So how did those things play into each other? Well, obviously, two of those, the zine and the podcast, are are mostly like analytical, responsive works. They're not fiction. They're definitely not Marvel-sanctioned. In a way, the zine and the actual snapshot came out of the same place, which was a lot of conversations with Kurt Busiek, who's also a huge Cyclops fan, about what makes the character tick and what I like about him and why I relate to him, um, which led long-term to Kurt proposing me as the writer for the comic when he started putting together um, the snapshots line. Um, in less direct terms, I mean, the, the zine and sort of the thought processes in there are definitely sort of part of my understanding of Cyclops as a character. And, you know, part of the process of getting to the point where there was a solid enough voice that I could use for that character to, you know, write a full comic from his perspective. And was it you that did Cyclops Has a Good Day? I'm trying to remember where that came from. Yeah, so that's my that's the theme of my convention sketchbook, is Cyclops Has a Good Day. Yeah, because I think in Marvel Snapshots, Cyclops has a good day sometimes. I really loved to see him be excited about the Fantastic Four. It's something that I loved, but it's also something where I go, oh, somebody's clicking with this character, finally. <laughs> you know, we barely get to see it. Sometimes we do. I mean, I think that, you know, the previous Cyclops uh, series was really good. There's been a lot of things that I've enjoyed with Cyclops. But it's just nice sometimes to see 
him smile, you know? <laughs> it's one of those characters where you just don't get to see him smile enough. In Krakoa now, much more. But for a long time, he was definitely, you know, going to outer space isn't about fun, Jubilee. <laughs> like, no, no, it's specifically, I think, going, going into cyberspace that's not about fun. Outer space can be fun. But if you're talking about the Pizza Hut comic, it's definitely like going into the internet. Yes, that is what I am referring. Thank you. <laughs> I cannot believe Cyclops sometimes. But I loved all of that. I'm so, so thrilled of your connection with Cyclops. I think that even the times where I look at Cyclops and I've been like, you know, I don't know, buddy. I have a lot more sympathy for him, I think, maybe than I ever have now. Because I see even, I mean, obviously the stuff with X Factor, right? That was um, editorial <laughs> more than I yeah. think anything else. But you look back at it and I go, yeah, Cyclops gets a pretty bad rap here. But at the same time, all of the rest of the O5 are pretty insufferable as well. <laughs> so. Oh my God, they're all so terrible at X Factor. <laughs> I think of that book as the gifted kids grow up book because they're terrible in, in like all of those really specific ways. Yeah. <laughs> I have a great fondness for X Factor, but I also, you know, I think that he really bears the brunt of that. I think a lot of times people go, well, look at how terrible he was to Maddie and all of this. And it's like, well, first of all, that was a really long time ago. So we can't hold characters accountable for stuff like this anymore because all of this other stuff has happened. He killed Professor X. Like there's been all kinds of other stuff. But what do you think of his new direction? Because now I think it's Cyclops has a good day every day almost because it seems like he's kind of getting what he wants out of life, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there there's a scene, I don't remember exactly when it's from, where he's talking to Wolverine about what he's doing. This is from, from years ago. And he's saying, you know, that the idea is to create this world with the understanding that they're probably not going to have a place in it. And... I think he's a character to whom it genuinely never occurred that he would A, live to see, but B, be able to be part of a seriously better situation for mutants, yet anything remotely approaching Krakoa. And so even beyond sort of the basic, this is fun and all of our bedrooms connect and all the kids are here, stuff that's there, you know, he's, he's a character who's, who's living in a reality that he never expected would be for him. It's a reach, but I'm, I'm going to go for it because I'm going to reach. But what it reminds me of, actually, is the way that queer and trans elders will talk about, you know, and I'm thinking specifically of my uncle, who's HIV positive and, and has been since the 90s and definitely thought that, you know, his life would be well over by now. And so he's sometimes struggling to live in a world where things asterisk are better also you know, it's not Krakoa, you know? <laughs> We're not, like, that much better. <laughs> but it's interesting for me. I, I really like stories about that, about, like, what happens when someone who's acclimated to trauma, war. We were talking about this with Glory, too, Sarah. Like, what happens to them after those those things end? Like, mm -hmm. who are they and how do they reacclimate and how do they— how do you— have hope when all you've been doing is fighting for that hope. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about Cyclops in like a similar way, Jay. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you absolutely, absolutely nailed something to the core of the character, both in the metaphor you described, which I think is incredibly, incredibly apt, um, and also just in, in the sense of someone who's so used to fighting that the absence of you know, large-scale peril and conflict is, is just sort of this unfamiliar space to navigate. Mm. Mm. Totally. 
that's something that a few times the comics have addressed directly, but I think not to the extent that I'd like. Yeah, I think it's a it's something that we're all very uncomfortable with, or else people who have been through war might be treated better. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You know, two thinking about the the uh, Marvel snapshots, which <laughs> before we started recording listeners, we were like, is it Marvel snapshots colon X-Men or is it X-Men colon Marvel snapshots? And Jay said, I think it's been every variation there is. <laughs> so what I found it in Marvel as was X-Men colon Marvel snapshots in the Marvel Unlimited uh, library. What stood out to me about it was all this interiority we get with Cyclops really getting to look into his thought process as a child pre-having superpowers. But also what I loved was this way that it felt like having a mashup between a really old comic and a really new comic. Because we see sort of the, and I know people are going to get mad that I say this, but I'm going to say it because I believe it, the sort of stilted language that comes from the old comics where people all talked like, well, I guess maniacal villains, which they were, but they talked like maniacal villains from a Sonic video game. And it was a bit much. But here you see that sort of take place, right, with Mantis coming up and like, I'm going to get you, everybody. And then at the same time, it's juxtaposed with this much slower narrative, internal dialogue for Cyclops. And for me, what was cool is it made it feel like comics were connected again. Like it like it was like coming full circle. It's like the Ouroboros, right? You were giving me where the snake was eating its tail again. And I thought that was super cool. So I just wanted to know, why did you decide to deal with some of the older issues? You know, I know that in some ways it was, I think Marvel Snapshots was designed to be origin stories, but you two correct me where I'm wrong. I have not read them all. But I'm also curious, like, why did you want to revisit some of the the old way comics were and why did you think it was important to show you know the the fantastic four and mantis engaging this like you know classic comic book battle and like the colors look like classic comics and the frames and all of that and then to to add this sort of more what i associate with more modern interiority in comics so first of all a huge amount of the credit for that timelessness and that that feel um go to Tom and Chris, um, Tom O'Reilly, who did the line art, and Chris O'Halloran, who's the colorist. Like, the ways that that story and that comic bridge modern and kind of Silver Age classic stuff aren't things that I could have pulled off without, like, those two specific guys on the visuals. So, oh, Dr. Mantis. Dr. Mantis was so fun. (laughs) I mean, the snapshots line... It's not origin stories, or mostly not origin stories. I think I think mine might be the only one that's officially an origin story. Um, and it's mostly, like Marvel's, about sort of the relationships between heroes and current events that aren't ever specifically dated, but are, are assumed to have taken place roughly the same time that the comics were published. So nominally, there's no specific date where Snapshots takes place, but it also has a couple very specific visual markers that place it in the 60s. Like, there's only one thing that's actually specifically dated in it, and it's the title treatment of one of the magazines that Scott looks at at the library. But it's in an era that could reasonably be anywhere between, like, 1963 and 2003 or 2013. As far as why to have, you know, the Silver Age character, it's because what what Scott is imprinting on and what he's seeing is really is that original Silver Age Fantastic Four. And I think, you know, the color and the grandiosity and the performative parts of, God, especially the villains, are so much of what defines that era. I don't know if you've ever read any Silver Age Fantastic Four, but it is, it's, it's just batshit. It's amazing. 
and it's ridiculous and it's all much, much, much larger than life. And everyone talks like they're played by Vincent Price and I love it to death. <laughs> and so that's the reality that he's seeing in this comic. So like that's that's the stuff that's out there in the world and the conversations that people are having and the things that are being reported on TV. Like this is the giant movie monster that's coming to life and wrecking midtown Manhattan. So it seemed pretty natural to have that there. I love, too, that Cyclops takes inspiration from the Fantastic Four to be heroic in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's a lot of other things at play. But I love that he's so inspired by it. And then that the world very much is, oh, but not like you. Like, you are X-Men. You work in secrecy. Everybody thinks you suck, you know? So I think that... There's just something very interesting about how excitable he is and how he really is inspired by them. Obviously, the way that the X-Men and the Fantastic Four interact with each other going forward, you know, from the time that this story takes place makes it even more interesting how inspired he is by them. But I think, too, even just in that moment, there's something that kind of adds to his tragedy a little bit because you go, oh, it's like a kid who wants to grow up to be a major league baseball player or something. You know, it's something that he is so passionate about, but there's just kind of a sadness to it because the world doesn't view him the same way. Yeah. I mean, that's that's going to be true no matter where things things go. And I mean, to, to spoil this for people who haven't read it because it's been out for more than a year and also because you know his origin story already, um, most of it takes place before his mutation manifests. And... He's not really setting out to be a superhero. And I think I think that's an important aspect of Cyclops as a character, is that he's never been the guy who said, I want to be a superhero. And even in Snapshots, like what he wants isn't to be just like the Fantastic Four. It's to have agency and to do something to concretely help people, to be able to make a difference. Because he's he's been, you know, grasping for some measure of control over his life since well, always, but most notably since being thrown out of a burning plane and then raised by someone who made his second job continual gaslighting. So he's been really, really stuck and specifically really stuck in a context where horrible things are happening around him or to him. And he's got absolutely no power to interact with, let alone stop. And that's really what he wants. And that's the thing that he really sees in the Fantastic Four is that they're people who, yeah, they've got these powers, but ultimately what they're doing is taking the tools they have and using them to step in and stop the unstoppable or save the unsavable or any of those things. And like, that's the part that he really, really wants. And that theme is so clear in that moment where he's in the rubble from the stadium or the speaking hall. Theater, lecture hall. You know, when he's in that rubble and I think part of me expected that to be the place that his mutation would manifest, right? He's under stress. He's underground. People need help. And instead, he finds this very clever solution. And, uh, you know, it, a human solution, I'll say. You know, not to get in too deep in the spoilers. And that saves the day. And so exactly what you're saying just totally connected for me in that moment. In my mind, it's distilled into that moment where it's like he's shown that there are heroic acts or he proves to himself there are heroic acts that one can do without being super heroic. Yeah, and I think I think another really important aspect of, of the character is that that's really unconnected to his powers for him. Like, he has a superpower that's useful under extremely specific circumstances in extremely specific ways, but what he brings to the table in large part is actually 
strategy and moment-to-moment thinking. Like, one of my favorite X-Men First Class comics involves him, and this has happened in, in other forms in the 616 at various times, but involves him basically, without his powers, using the danger room to take out a Sentinel. Whenever he's playing pool and stuff like that, I, I don't know if that's something that I've made up in my head or if it is something that's canonical, but I believe I remember him winning at pool just by being really good at strategizing. He knows how to do the geometry and to figure it out. (laughs) I did research into this because I'm a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) And basically, it is canonically inconsistent whether the geometry stuff is a side effect of his mutation or not. Oh, huh. Oh, X-Men. So much logic. So much that just really makes sense. I love how self-contradictory it gets. Actually, I, I too. really, really I think dig it's so it. Like funny. It, it, it feels like the tangible evidence of the humanity behind it and of the fact mm. that this is this big shared universe that's been sprawled out and planned in various degrees of detail or non-detail for <laughs> decades and decades and decades. And I really like that. Like I'm I'm the person who likes looking at original comics art specifically for the whiteout. Oh, for me, that always feels like an Easter egg if I find whiteout. I'm like, ooh, look at me paying attention. But yeah, no, you're right. There's a there's a lived-in feel of for the X-Men, right? Like, they feel like somebody wrote some of this. <laughs> well, somebody wrote all of it. But you can tell in some places, right, that those people didn't always agree. Yeah, and some people wrote these things and really planned them out. And sometimes someone got called because they needed to get an issue out really fast and needed a fill-in. And, you know, all of it's there. And all of it's part of this big, amazing, sprawly, messy, spectacular hole. Oh, (laughs) X-Men. Oh, X-Men. Hey, everybody. Earlier today, I made myself a sandwich, and I thought to myself, if I could rate and review this sandwich, I would give it five stars. And (laughs) I would say... This sandwich is so incredible. It was the best sandwich I've had literally in days. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And that would be a positive review. That would help me see what audience responses were to my sandwich. And, you know, it would just be really a helpful system. I wonder if there's another situation where rating and reviewing would come in handy. Oh. Huh. Oh, my God. No. What? You could rate and review this podcast and then that helps us find our audience and it helps us find whatever we've lost it helps us find what we've lost helps us find our socks (laughs) our keys our cell phone people don't talk about it enough when you rate and review it really changes someone's life (laughs) yeah it's gonna change my life that's for sure and we like to read the reviews you know the ones that are positive that say soothing and nice things (laughs) five stars we'll give you five stars as a listener you give us five stars as a podcast five sandwiches (laughs) this podcast let's face it is five delicious sandwiches you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. 
Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. ask your x-men origin story like jay how did Ooh, you yeah. discover the x-men oh gosh so i'm not gonna count seventh grade spanish class where if we were really good <laughs> we got to watch x-men <laughs> because i didn't really pay attention <laughs> um but so when miles and i got to be friends he started lending me comics and lent me at around the same time god loves man kills and the entire age of apocalypse so those were my two x-men gateways and they were weird points of entry. I mean, God Loves Man Kills isn't. God Loves Man Kills is like the absolute traditional first X-Men book you give someone. But Age of Apocalypse was a weird one because it meant that a lot of the versions of the characters I got familiar with first weren't their regular ones. And I actually attribute a lot of my interest in the line to that. Not because the regular ones were less interesting, but because knowing that these weren't the standard versions made me really, really curious about what they were like at home. (sighs) I love hearing about how people get into comics just in general, but I extra, extra love to hear about how people get into the X-Men. It's not just, oh, I, I just read them <laughs> ever. Oh, I also, used to, I also used to borrow comics a lot from friends at school. And this was, mm. this was a little bit earlier, but like I got smatterings of other titles. And so a bunch of the people I went to, to high school with read comics. Um, one of them is now a senior editor in the, the Bat Office at D.C., um, but I would I would borrow random issues from them. And so one of one of the interesting things about coming back to the late 90s where we are now is that I'm being like, oh, Dan had that issue in biology once and I borrowed it from him and didn't remember <laughs> any of it. <laughs> My X-Men origin story also involves seventh grade Spanish class, which I find very strange, Jay. <laughs> um, I saw the X-Men movie that year. And then I was like, what are these men of X? Why am I not one of them? And also, am I in love with Wolverine? So I wrote a probably inappropriately steamy self-fanfic in Spanish about Wolverine and how he was sobrenatural. <laughs> so that's that's my origin. Besides watching the TV show, which I did as a kid, but then... That was when I was like, wow, I should be an X-Men. I just feel like it's my calling in life. (laughs) Didn't work out so far. Straight up, I just saw Pride of the (laughs) (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, Sarah's got like the throwback to the pilot of the pilot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I watched it on, uh, it was just randomly on one time. And I saw it and was just, you know, for years after. Whatever happened to the X-Men? They they were so interesting. And every now and again, you would see the comics on the stands at a gas station or a grocery store. And I would always buy them. 
They never made sense. (laughs) It wasn't until hilariously Age of Apocalypse that I started really picking it up and being like, oh, this extra doesn't make sense. But you know what? In for the ride. Were were you like really disappointed to learn that Wolverine wasn't actually Australian? (laughs) That accent. (laughs) The weirdest part to me is like, but Hugh Jackman is. Yeah. Like, it's all so weird. Later, yeah. It's like, I know that wasn't on purpose. My brain really wants it to fit. It's like, look at these things. It's a pattern. And I'm like, it's not a pattern. It's a coincidence. (laughs) Simply a coincidence. Pareidolia is, you know, a whole other superpower in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the most recent comic you wrote was the Captain America comic. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. Okay, sweet. Now that you are a graduate student and, you know, with an emphasis on human rights, I can't help but feel that that plays into your comic writing in some way. I I was curious how it felt to take on Captain America, because I do feel that that is such a character that people take all kinds of different ideas from. I read a lot of his run in the 80s as a kid. So to me, Captain America was always the guy who's, you know, the American government is corrupt, you know, and he's kind of standing up against that stuff. U.S. agent is the guy who toes the line, right? Right. And and that there's this kind of animosity between them over that. So, you know, much the same as we've talked about Cyclops, these are totally different characters, but in some ways— I see them both as being really useful tools to talk about certain stuff. And I think that Captain America has always been an interesting character to apply to anything that is critical of the U.S. government, you know, because I think that there's not always a lot of space for that, especially now that, you know, the mouse is in charge. I think that it's a little dicey and it's kind of different. I think that the vibe of Captain America is often different than what it was whenever I was reading comics or that people have different ideas of Captain America. Reading the Infinity comic, it called back to a lot of the stuff that I remember. So what was your introduction to Captain America? And does any of that sound familiar to what your experience with the character has been? So my gateway to a lot of Captain America, not my initial introduction to the character, but but the source of almost everything that I know about Captain America in continuity is my wife, T, who is a massive Captain America fan and knows Captain America comics like I know X-Men comics. Like, she is just fantastically, fantastically well-read on this. And um, so when when Alana first approached me about this, the first thing I did was go to T and be like, you're going to help me with the continuity, right? Because I was, I was so worried because I, I love the character for actually pretty much all the reasons that you described. Like, that's the extent to which I'm familiar with Captain America. It's Captain America who is critical of the government, who is incredibly principled, who believes in a version of America that is, you know, not an abstract ideal, but something that's worth working towards. But I, I don't have a lot of, like, really deep dive continuity knowledge. And I was I was really, really concerned about that. And I, that was something I, like, I, I wrote a lot of this email after she asked me about it and was like, you know, I don't know this all that well. Like, like I don't know this as well as the X-Men. Like, if you want me to, if, if, if you're looking at the, the deep continuity stuff that I've done there, it's, it's not going to transfer at all. She was like, no, that's okay. Just tell a good story. So having T and having, having heard Captain America's stories via T for years, like, in addition to recommending comics, like, Somewhere there are screen caps of a text thread where she explains the entire Cap Wolf saga to me. 
like fairly early in our relationship. Um, Aww. <laughs> what a bonding experience. That's right? beautiful. She's amazing. I'm I love cry. her so much. Yeah, so also, also a huge amount of my sense of Cap as a character comes from T's sense of Cap as a character, which is, is obviously, again, again, all of that. So in Snapshots specifically, something that I think is really important to know in talking about the intent behind it is that I turned in the story breakdown and outline on January 3rd. What? Yeah. Okay, so for listeners, if you are not familiar with Captain America Infinity, it is a story about a Captain America essentially infiltrating a terrorist group of white nationalists who are holding a bunch of hostages in Philadelphia's Independence Hall. Why do I lay that out? Because holy crap, Jay, you wrote that before the insurrection that literally happened three days later? Yeah. Uh, are you a witch? Well, to what extent it was based on anything, it was based on the occupation of the, the wildlife refuge in Oregon a few years previously. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I, I also, yeah, it, over the time between when I pitched it and when it came out, I was, I was really worried that it was going to go from like creepily prescient to kind of dated because of the stuff that happened. But um, I, I wanted specifically to have Cap have to confront the extent to which being a symbol takes away your own control over what you represent and mean. So, and, and I think, I mean, honestly, I think the ideal character to do a version of that with right now would be the Punisher, but I can't imagine that actually getting past anyone mm-hmm. um, is a privilege. But, but the idea, like Sam Wilson had just come off not only controversial fans, but specifically controversial within the comic period as Captain America. And so with Steve back, you got to figure there are going to be a bunch of people who are really, really excited to have what they see as the real Captain America back. And those are largely going to be people whose definition of the real Captain America is based on some pretty shitty premises. Like to, to an extent, it's going to be, you know, people who are just like, I fear things that aren't intrinsically familiar, but there's going to be a huge amount of, for instance, baked in racism in, in how people perceive Steve versus Sam. And Steve is also a character who went from um, being an incognito hero and was for a very, very, very long time to one who's publicly visible and one who is, again, acutely, acutely aware of the ways that people make him into a symbol to the point that he's, he's quit being Captain America because he was so upset at what that symbol had come to represent and also because he was upset that they wouldn't give him a cape. But that's kind of a whole other thing. <laughs> that's that's my, my favorite nomad detail is, is, is when he's, he's grumpily sewing his nomad costume. He's like, they said I couldn't have a cape, but now I'm going to have a cape. <laughs> Nomad is hilarious. That is, wow, yeah. Every part of that story, <laughs> I love. But I, I was thinking about that and thinking about, you know, what, what that would mean even more in the age of social media and the rise of white supremacy right now and how that, was, how, how that would interact with someone who is as principled and as thornily principled as Captain America, as Steve Rogers specifically. And... He's, he's always been the person who was created to be a PR figure who then swore on camera. That is, I feel like, sort of the fundamental Steve Rogers personality, that he is someone who people looked at and went, you know, he's got a square jaw and he's blonde and he looks really good with a shield and he's going to represent, you know, the entrenched interests of America and industry and you put him in front of a mic and he's like, everyone should unionize <laughs> and, yeah, and fuck the police and, and all of that stuff. And so... I wanted him to do that and to really have to confront having kind of 
something really intrinsic to his identity and to, to what he sees as that he's attached to very tightly stolen and, and co-opted by a group who really represents everything that he stands against. The other thing that inspired the Sons of Hancock specifically was the back- backlash to the 1619 Project. Mm. And the ways that people will obsessively cling to this incredibly whitewashed idea of history and of American history and of America and, and the ways specifically the white supremacists appropriate history. So the, the occupation of the, the Liberty Bell Memorial is basically that writ big, is, is a group of, of white supremacists literally appropriating history. When it's, it's so important to talk about the symbols, I think particularly when it comes to Cap, the, the perception of him, the perception of his symbols, his dress, his who he will be, seems really important. And, and not just in your work, I don't know if you checked it out, but Danny Lore did a run that was uh, King in Black, Captain America. So it was with the whole uh, Null or whatever his name is and Venom's evil symbiotic god person who comes in and like beats everybody up. And possesses them. I have not read that. My entire knowledge of Null comes from um, Marvel Puzzle Quest. <laughs> I haven't read anything else in The King in Black. I only read The Captain America because Danny wrote it. And so based on that, I have two conclusions. One, perhaps only trans people should write Captain America for the next hundred years. Because y'all are really getting into some amazing characterization with him that I find really compelling. That I think is really interesting and troubles the sort of masculinity because you know it's both like the nationalism and the masculinity right with yeah, cap yeah and i'm sure so. other things too he's very pretty everyone loves a pretty boy you all tease and play with that in ways i think is are really cool so i'm gonna email marvel and tell them my new plan for captain america's future i feel like you could extend that to superheroes in general and it would go pretty well because i feel like you know what i'm on gonna find a group who's more invested in like really investigating and, and interrogating layers of identity. <laughs> I'm on it. Just give it to us, Marvel. We got it. We can do this. Yeah. yeah, so that's my silly joke. But then my serious part of it is, you know, Danny also gets into how Cap is perceived. In, in, in their story, it's specifically about how Sam and Bucky react to and perceive him and then how he's perceived when he, like, enters a fight. But it seems like... There's something really important here for Cap around perception. You talked about it a little, but I'm curious, where do you think that comes from? You know, yes, he was created to be a symbol, right? He's he's propaganda walking around. But then why does he feel such a need to grapple with that, perhaps? And why are we seeing more of those narratives? And you can be like, because trans people are amazing and we care about identity. And I will be like, again, Marvel, are you listening? Um, but they're not. But is there more there or am I just making a mountain out of a molehill? No, I think there's a ton there. And I think he's a guy who has never, ever, ever been comfortable with authority, who in a lot of ways is, is Jack Kirby's activism made manifest as a character in politics you know, made manifest as a character, who's, who's never been, you know, sanguine with authority, who's always been someone who really went out of his way to fight for what he saw as the right thing as opposed to the acceptable thing, and whose definition has changed specifically because it's meant to reflect the definition of America. He's Captain America, and what America means as an abstract has changed massively from, you know, the 1940s to now had changed massively from the 1940s to whenever he woke up from being frozen even. And so I think he he sees that as 
a tremendous responsibility both to be part of, you know, defining what people see America as or what America should be. And at the same time, that that's in continual tension with the role he's supposed to play, which is reflecting the interests of America as it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Is like, I hadn't thought of this before. So tell me where I'm wrong, you two. Is Cap's kind of a mirror. Like people look into Cap to see what they want to in him. And have that reflected back, like what their interpretation of America is or what have you. And I, I think it's interesting that here he uses one of his big symbols, the shield, to break an American symbol. And that conversation with like the, the Congress people, so good. So good. I'm not going to give it away because you should go read it, listeners. But at the end of it all, after Cap makes his decisions and does what needs to be done— uh, you know, he gets called in to talk to, like, the important people. <laughs> and he's just like, shut up. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it so much. <laughs> the other thing I think is really distinct about this comic is it's a scroll comic, not a, a page turn comic. And I'm curious, is that the first time you've worked in that format? And what did you as a writer find different about using sort of the scroll story style versus the page turn? It is the first time I've worked in that format. and. I suspect this may be somewhat specific to my writing style and how I approach it, but oh my God, it was so much easier. <laughs> um, being able to, to consider things in terms of panel-to-panel -panel pacing and scene-to-scene -scene pacing, but not having to consider pages just sort of took out a massive layer of consideration. And I suspect that some of that was, was Nico doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to the pace. When I'm saying it's easier, I mean it was easier for me specifically because someone else was picking up some of that slack. Um, but I really enjoyed um, being able to, I guess, focus on on the the flow of narration with one big detail, one big formal detail, kind of taken out of the picture, so mm. that I could I could micro focus in on 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 the smaller stuff, but also on on sort of the big scene to scene transitions. Initially, I was way 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 too ambitious about it. Um, having having a number of pages is, I think, a constraint that I was very used to. Um, so the first <laughs> the first script I sent in, Alana sent it, sent it back and was like, "You have to cut half these panels." This is this is this is too much comic. And I was like, but but there's no page count. She's like, yeah, no, no, Jay, <laughs> you need to stop this now. So it, it it really forced me also to be much more aware of the economy of my panel to panel storytelling in in ways mm. that are less necessary when you've got sort of the backbeat of a page count to keep you in check. Totally. Well, and it it feels like you and and Nico Leon, um, the artist. It it seems like you used the style, the format really well. Like there's this one part of the story where, you know, Cap's doing what Cap does and he's beating up a bunch of white supremacists and they're all like sprawled on the floor. And we see him from the top as if we were like a security camera or a bird if we were inside. And we look down and sort of watch him make progress through that, you know, gauntlet of people. And it looks so cool in the scroll. I thought it looked so dope. And so I was like, wow, it feels like Jay and Nico really used the format to its best ability. All of the credit for that, and really all of the credit for the fight scene choreography in general goes to Nico. Um, he is such a tremendous artist. And I, as a writer in general, I am of the opinion that artists are generally going to be better than I am at telling stories visually. And so the more space that I can give them to do that, the better. Um, and especially with the fight scenes, like a lot of the narrative decisions were Nico's. There. Mm. And what was that process like working with Nico? So 
we didn't do a lot of direct correspondence because um, English is his second language and he was concerned about fluency and we, we were both sort of trying to half translate what we were writing. Um, but so, so a lot of our communication went through Alana, but um, he was really great about replying to the scripts and basically pushing back on points that he felt should be different. Um, I tried to make sure that there was like a lot of space for him to, to do his thing and explore in that. Um, he actually, he is, is in large part also why the ending is as upbeat as it, as it is. Because I originally was really torn and he was like, this should, no, you should, you should like bring it back to the beginning and have it be something better. And he was absolutely, absolutely right. That's such a nice moment. Good call, Nico. Another thing about the art that, and, and the lettering specifically, and lettering uh, was done by Domo Sanchez Almada, um, is that I really like the way that you withhold things in the speech bubble. So, so often, you know, it doesn't happen as much in the big two, but maybe in more independent comics or in like TV and film, obviously, you hear people say these things that are just horrifying. And, you know, is it, it they're like, it's verisimilitude. And it's like, yes, but it's also traumatizing to me. I don't need reality that much. So what I love is, you know, instead of telling us the racist thing that the person said in the dialogue box, which again, big two, you probably couldn't, um, I'm guessing. <laughs> I probably could have, which is a little bit sad. I oh, could not no, have kept like swear, that. which I, I fought really hard and lost on. But I honestly oh. probably could have gotten away with with actually having villains go pretty far. Well, that one I don't like because I knew you couldn't do the curse words because— Crystal Frazier was just telling us that on Gamma Flight, she had the word damn in one of her <laughs> speech bubbles. And they were like, Spider-Man cries when you curse. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't with that. Um, but, okay, so I'm sad to hear that. But I, then that makes me feel like all the more excited that you and Domo and Nico made the decision. And I'm curious, you know, where that decision fell to instead of actually telling us the racist thing they said or, you know, writing the words out, you use sort of a, a sensor block almost. And so you use the black background and the white letters that say something racist. And I loved that. I would love to know why you made that decision, how that decision was made in concert with the letterer and the artist. And yeah, I just want to know more about it. So that one was, was entirely me. And I did it because I feel like there is absolutely no good reason to spell that stuff out. I mean, like you said, it's the people it, who, are, who it's going to impact are going to be the people it re-traumatizes. But also, narratively, what matters isn't the words that are said, it's how Steve perceives them, because he's the point of view character there. And I can, you know, I could have someone just say something super awful and Steve glare, but I didn't want to leave that open to interpretation. Like, I, I wanted the relevant part to be, you know, Steve hears this and it, that's the button it pings. I actually, I got it. So I got a ton of pushback on social media about that, um, which was actually really, really, really funny because people were, were insisting that I had censored things. I had, I had censored the comic and I was I was blocking free speech. And it was like, yes, the little man, what I invented, I have done him dirty <laughs> by not letting him fully express his trite bullshit. You're blocking your own free speech, Jay. And, and just and like, I think, too, that for a lot of white readers and writers to an extent. And this is this is one of those things that I don't think anyone really wants to talk about or really admit. I think there's a degree of vicarious thrill to the fact that villains can say that stuff. And oh, hell yeah. I think it's really fucked up. And I think it's a thing that especially white writers need to be super aware of and not feed. And so there was, yeah, there was never really any serious question of actually putting that stuff in there. Um, I find... 
like self-aware comic stuff pretty funny with the something incredibly racist censor bars or trite nationalist bullshit or whatever. It wasn't bullshit because obviously <laughs> you're not allowed to swear in a cap comic. Um, there, there is a later one where it's just like, you're not allowed to swear in a Captain America comic, which is, is the, yes, the only I time that, that note comes from me and not from Cap. Um, but I, I mostly went with that approach because I thought it was funny. It is funny. It feels like a little, it feels both like a protection that like we're being offered and like a wink, you know, like it's like, look how funny comics are. We could just do stuff like this. And it's like, oh, I just love it. I just love it. And also thank you for not promulgating things that we really don't need people of all ages to be reading. Anytime. I am always excited to not say that shit. <laughs> oh, our bar is so low. But yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that it reminds me of back in the day with like the Grim Reaper or whatever, and you would be reading it and he says all this horrible stuff and then you're like, wait, so is the writer against this or like, there's a big question mark because later on they sympathize with him. So I don't know. I just think it does open up too much of a question mark, basically. Yeah, I also just, I didn't want those characters to get their side of the debate. The fallacy of both sidesism and the idea that this is an even and reasonable debate is something that I find absolutely infuriating in day-to-day life. And I just didn't want to perpetuate it. Like, this is, this is not a perspective that is worth the space, the dialogue that it would take to explore or represent. It, it doesn't get to have that. And we're all the better for it. <laughs> yeah. So I have loved hearing about Captain America and Cyclops. These are two great characters. I think that your perspective on them is so fascinating. Is there something that you have coming up or that's on the horizon right now that you can talk about? Or is it mostly just trying to survive grad school? <laughs> that is an excellent question. And the answer is that there is nothing coming up that I can talk about. <laughs> I love when people say that. So you'll have to come back when you can talk about it because uh, you got two of your biggest fans right here. Oh, thank you. Well, it's very easy. If you can turn a couple of characters that are frequently not <laughs> my favorite into people I love, you're doing all right because I am the sole arbiter of how you're doing as a comic book creator. <laughs> Clearly that's not true. Well, Jay, this has been delightful. Thank you so, so much for joining us. You know, if listeners want to find more information about you, can you tell us about where they can find you on social media, if you have a website to share, and then, of course, share the handles for your podcast? So if you like the sound of my voice and want to hear more of it, uh, I am, again, half of the podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which you can find at explainthexmen.com and as Explain the X-Men on Twitter and Tumblr. I am... Mainly on Twitter, personally, I am not lasers there. And um, I sort of have a web page, but mostly what I have is a link tree that's linked from my Twitter bio. So that is where I'll direct you for that. And that's that's got links to, to things like my Gumroad, where you can find Ruby Quartz Panic Room and Zines and my ridiculous calligraphy t-shirt shop and, you know, my full CV if you, in case you want to hire a uh, human rights and or comics person. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And listeners, if you didn't have your pen out, don't worry. 
All of that will be listed in the show notes. So wherever you are listening to this episode, go over to the episode, click the three little dots, a.k.a. ellipses, and that will open up the information and you can go follow Jay. Please do. Go listen to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. I have learned so freaking much from that podcast. As you all know, I am not the biggest X-Men fan. It's not about the X-Men. And I don't need to say what it is about because it isn't really about anything. It's just life. And... Now I like a lot of them more because I understand the background. In particular, as we have shouted out on previous episodes, the Mojoverse episode is just mind-blowing. I'm going to have to run and scramble right now to change my top tweet to something other than subtext as an anagram for butt sex. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? I want that tattooed on my body. That's good stuff. That's good stuff right there. All right. Thank you, listeners, for being here. Sarah, as always, you are the image of delight. Kate, we love you and appreciate you. Yeah. you for listening to bitches on comics we are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture as you might have guessed you can follow us on twitter at at bitches on comics and on instagram at at bitches on comics our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs I don't remember what it is I am in charge of updating the website however so good luck thanks for the heads up I'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts I'm Sarah Century and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.